In this week's CoinGeek Conversation, Dr. Craig Wright tells me how he set the Bitcoin software going, comments on its early website, and talks about how much people did or didn't know about his connection with Bitcoin at the time it was launched. You're listening to CoinGeek Conversations with Charles Miller. Well, Craig, it's very good of you to come back for a second week uh, to discuss Bitcoin. And, and this, as you wanted, I, I wore the same clothes. Well, so did I. I thought, mm. you know, let's not, let's not shock people with new ties or anything no, like no. that. <laughs> so I wanted to go back into history a bit. At the masterclass, you talked about 300 cryptos existing before Bitcoin and 30,000 attempts at digital cash invention. No, I talked about 300 proof-of-work distributed cryptocurrencies. So cryptocurrencies, there are about 30,000 different ones that have existed since the 80s. But where does that figure come from? Actual numbers of attempts. Um, so everything from micro-mint, pay-mint, um, crypto credits, uh, there were literally thousands of the things. Tens of thousands. Mm, Just like there are now. So, I mean, if you look at it, there's there's something like um, uh, 40,000 different blockchains now. Um, But you'd be hard-pressed to name most of them because 99% are just pump-and-dump scams that have no servers even. And somebody has posted on uh, on Twitter a a very early shot of uh, the Bitcoin Web, is it the Bitcoin website? or It's the website, yes. Yeah. It's a delightfully simple setup, no sort of logos or anything involved. But mm. what are we looking at here exactly? Uh, what we're looking at here is basically a picture of the early wallet and saying what Bitcoin is, um, saying that it's the alpha release um, with a, a transaction being done between uh, fictional Bob and Alice and then an example by IP address where the order information is added in the message. Now, this um, demonstrates my lack of um, design skills, of course, because, well, my web page design skills. I like it. It's very simple, I know, but, I mean, I, I don't have all of the um, wasteful um, sort of, I don't know, um, Uh, CSV filing that has useless information and pop-ups anymore. This transaction took place on the 3rd of January 2009. So what was sort of going on then? Uh, First sort of launch of the code, making sure everything ran. Um, First set of problems shortly after that week where it needed to be restarted and everything got totally mucked up. And this transaction was just you sending it between your own computers Mm. to test the system, right? Yeah. So looking at uh, just a few machines connected and up. And um, the example there, 192.168.02, I think, is um, uh, actually just one of the internal machines. That's the IP address of one of your computers. Yeah. And, and that, was, that was all you needed. Mm-hmm. You just needed to have an IP address to send mm-hmm. something to and to receive it from. Yeah, I mean, it would have been nice if I'd actually fully integrated it so you had DNS names or uh, something like email where you'd have a a name at DNS name, like some of the other protocols like Finger and things would already do. Um, But it is an alpha. So you can forgive me for not having everything perfect. If we saw you making this transaction, what what, what would your surroundings be? Was this when you'd be up in your farm? Um, Around that stage, I think... uh, Probably would have been at my farm for that. 
You'd left your job at BDO. Yeah. Um, A mess would be the best way to put it. (laughs) Um, Workshop desk going right around the room, computers, printers, uh, more computers, screens everywhere. and me in the middle, so I could with roller type chairs, so I could go back and forwards between the sides. And was was being able to make this work very very exciting for you? Um, having it actually run, yes, it was good. I mean, um, yeah, having it crash shortly afterwards wasn't, but but it was the fruit of many years of thinking and then technical work. I mean, it, mm. it was a eureka moment in a way. Yeah, I'd say that would be the the way you could look at it. Um, I mean, I had been working on trying to find a solution to micropayment problems since 1997. So, um, yeah, it was nice to finally have something that worked. Did you, I mean, was there anybody you were celebrating with or did you call your wife or? Uh, Well, I don't know if she was terribly happy at the time. She wanted you to get a proper job. Well, I had a proper job and um, I took a golden handshake and then I wasn't looking for a job. So, you know, wives can be like, hi, honey, I've decided to do this project that, um, well, I've got stuff I want to do. What's it pay? Um, Don't know. Right. Will it pay you? Don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Strangely enough, um, that's not a good selling point for a marriage. Right. But I really believe in it. I think it could be big. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. One of the interesting things that you said was how uh, Asimov's foundation series of novels and the maths prof character in there, Dr. Harry Seldon, Mm -hmm. was you said some of the ideas for blockchain came from that. Well, uh, keeping everything in an archive uh, does. I mean, the psychohistory in, in Sheldon basically means everything gets recorded. That was his sort of invented new science of psychohistory that was going to sort of yeah, yeah record. So analyzing everything in there. The problem, of course, is if you can imagine thousands of known solar systems um, and not even all directly connected anymore because of the distance between them Um, and 10,000 years plus since when earth was now that's a lot of recorded history and uh, if we think for a moment that probably 90 percent of greek literature roman literature are lost um, even some of the the famous like plutarch we, we don't have all of the works of plutarch it's amazing how much classical literature there is though isn't it oh compared to what there was I mean, there's a lot more. Mm. So we can think, great, we've got this stuff, but we, we also know about all the things we don't know about because of other people's writing. But how did this feed into your ideas about Bitcoin? Um, just the idea of keeping everything. I mean, I, I find it really interesting that people think that um, uh, things will be open and nev- like either never accessible if they're encrypted or um, uh, sort of not private if they're on a blockchain, but you have a combination and you can have encrypted data. But even if you take, say, AES-256, uh, it'll be broken eventually. But even without that, every uh, 18 months, you effectively lose one key bit worth of information because of the doubling of computer power. So thinking about that, eventually it gets to the point where you can solve it. And if it gets to the 86 to 90 bits where we are now, it's solvable. So that means 
in about 100 years' time, AES will be solvable. Um, and what does that mean then? It means people can just decrypt all that information. Right. Now, is that a problem right now? No. But in 100 years' time, things that have been locked away now mm. will be accessible again. So if you put everything there and you save everything and you have an encryptable, then that gives enough time, you know, like when after I'm dead and buried, then it doesn't matter so much about aspects of my life that I don't talk about or things like this or part, like children's photos and, mm. and those sort of things. In, in the future, they might be valuable to someone. Historians love this stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, though, because that's a, such a big idea, um, kind of keeping everything. And then the, the whole idea of digital cash mm -hmm. going between people seems to me like another really big idea. And these two things come together in Bitcoin. Was that the way you've thought about it all? Uh, well, um, I had always had a lot of fights with people in the security industry because uh, my foundations have always been part economist. And um, economics and security, people sit there going, oh, it's not secure enough. And my idea was it doesn't need to be that secure. It needs to be more secure than everyone else. I mean, it's the old um, outrunning the bear bit. I don't need to outrun him. I need to outrun you. Mm. But how does that relate to those two ideas then? Uh, well, Bitcoin's really a combination of both computer science and economics and game theory. And, and um, uh, by having a background in all of these topics, of course, yes. it makes it much easier. Again, this is sort of part of history, but at the um, Granath trial, you brought along several witnesses uh, to talk about your conversations or their conversations with you in those very early days. And you also talked about assembling 70 to 100 witnesses, you say, of... Um, who, who will be able to talk about you working on Bitcoin in those very early mm. days. Is that, so what, is that project going ahead to assemble those people? Uh, it is. Will I get enough that, that make me happy? No. Uh, but lawyers and court time, so we've only got a limited amount of t court time, so I can't just roll in a thousand people. And um, So we've got to select the best ones. We'll select people like um, uh, my CFO and, and accountant, who goes back to 2008 and people like that. So. There were 30 people, uh, I think, at the most, working at De Morgan. No, 50-something. Um, 50, okay. Um, at the peak. And, and that company existed specifically to exploit Bitcoin commercially. Mm. But so did you tell those people that you had invented it? No, but um, I found out later that they all knew anyway. So I had a, um, a chat with Alan Peterson, who was uh, my head of projects, and um, um, he, like, I was saying, um, so you guys know that I'm Satoshi, and he went, well, well, yes. I went, so why didn't you talk to me about this earlier? And he went, well, we didn't think you wanted to. I went, really? He went, well, yes, obviously you wanted to be private, so we didn't tell. We didn't tell. I went, but you talk about it yourselves. And I went, and he went, yeah, but okay. So anyway. But why didn't you tell them yourself? Um, I didn't think there was a reason. Well, but, but if you were inviting them to take part in this business around Bitcoin, why should they not know that? Why should they? I mean, the job well, was... Wouldn't it make, wouldn't it make your business, your, it would just make sense of the whole project here's this thing that i've invented and now we're going to go out and sell it and do things with but it. i wasn't selling it i wanted to scale it 
Well, all right. The, so, like the team Tripti and Olga and things um, and others working on Idemon, um, the idea was to do what now will come out with Terranode and, and take Bitcoin to scale to hundreds of thousands and then millions of transactions a second. And that is a task no matter who I am. Right. But so when you discovered that they all knew, was it then discussed openly and people didn't have to worry about letting you know that they knew kind of thing? Yes, but it was still annoying that they had this whole little secret behind my back. <laughs> Are you going to have to go through all that again in September when there's going to be an appeal hearing, I think, in Oslo? Mm, yeah, so we'll go through it, but it'll be a bit more organised. The um, Same witnesses and all uh, that? No, we'll have more. More? Uh, we had very limited in the, the first one because um, for some reason the first law firm that I had that, that I fired refused to put any witnesses on. So I had to end up firing them. They didn't agree with that strategy? Well, they just wouldn't do it. Right. I mean, um, for some reason, uh, anything that, that helped me, I mean, my own lawyers were getting that, no. I'm going, I've got witnesses and they go, we don't want to put them on. I'm going, screw you, I want them on. Right. I mean, I was, I was there and I heard mm. all the witnesses and, you know, there is absolutely no question that they gave a very convincing uh, account of themselves, very authentic and completely persuaded everybody. I think that you were on top of these subjects and knew all about it and were very, very busy with mm. these subjects around the time of the invention of Bitcoin. What's slightly unfortunate, I think, is that none of them, and perhaps it's because you hadn't, agreed, hadn't decided on the name Bitcoin, none of them was able to say, uh, yes, that's right. He told me it's, it's Bitcoin. It's coming up next week or next month or something. Don was running the Node software. Don, my uncle. Yes, I mean, so. but he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what. Well, he was still running the software. Well, yes, no, he was, but he. But he did, I mean, but why didn't he? It would have been so convenient if you'd said, "I've got this thing called Bitcoin. Do you mind running the software for it?" But he didn't have that. Well, he knew say. it was Bitcoin software. After, I mean, he knew what it was. He just didn't understand it. But he didn't hear the name, I think. Yeah, but why does that matter? It didn't well, it have didn't. a marketing name. I'm not a good marketing person. Right. In January 2009, running around going, hey, I've got Bitcoin. And people go, uh, that's nice. What the hell's that? Mm. It's this blah, blah, blah. Right, right. I mean, um, I mean, it's better to actually sell it on what it was. I've got a, a digital cash system or I've got an immutable ledger system. Um, when I was trying to sell things to Stefan at Centibet, I didn't run in going, I've got Bitcoin. Because, like he said, well, I don't care. But um, selling the idea of uh, actually recording information to keep the network secure, mm. that was a possibility. Uh, with Hoyts, selling the um, ability to securely push updates Secure right, their network. so they didn't need to know the sort of brand name, as it were. I mean, um, a, an interbank transfer protocol for um, um, uh, what's now QDOS, I mean, they didn't care. Mm -hmm. I mean, all they wanted, they, they don't really care what the messaging protocols are. They just wanted something secure that worked. Right. Um, the same with when I was starting Greyfog and, and other things with um, John Keeble and, and people. Um, that was a smart meter company. And um, the idea... People wanted their electricity meters to be read accurately with all the proof that it happened and all this sort of stuff. And um, 
Yeah, you, if you said you, Bitcoin, they wouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't have helped. And they, the, yeah, they wouldn't have helped. You would have gone. Um, I'm measuring your your meter using Bitcoin, and they're going to go. Yes. Uh, what the hell's that? And yeah. Then yeah. I just have to go back to explaining it anyway. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I mean, maybe I'm not a great salesman or marketing person, but the reality I can see is people wanted a smart meter. They didn't care what the technology behind it was. One other thing in the sort of uh, legal side of things. You sued Peter McCormack for libel and you, and you won, but you were only awarded one pound for that. And the reason for that, according to the judge, was that the claims that you made for having been disinvited for conferences, he didn't believe them and said that they were factually false and the other side produced people to uh, corroborate well, that. they what, didn't what, actually what? produce people. They said they were going to produce people and then they didn't. Um, unfortunately, though, um, I was no longer with CNAM, and um, the problem is that to get so a CNAM, uh, which is the university in Paris, oh right, yeah, um, to get all of the material together would have taken um, uh, weeks. I mean, we had two days. Um, this was dropped on two days before the case, which I thought was rather annoying. You know, we had sort of dropped everything, and not uh, which I didn't like from my lawyers anyway. Um, so rather than chasing up the evidence and getting, you'd have to go through letters rogatory and, and um, uh, because it's an international request. So you basically made a statement to your lawyers about uh, these disinvitations, but you hadn't actually got the sort of proof on paper. Is that is that? What you're well, I mean, I would have if we had managed yeah, it better. You, you um, for instance, my EA. Um, booked some of these conferences. And mm. um, I mean, my comment to my lawyers was, I don't have the emails, but other people do. Right. Um, and why don't I have it? Because um, I'm like every other typical useless executive. I don't book anything. I mean, I, I just turn up to things. So um, why don't I have the emails? Because uh, my EA puts everything together for me, talks to people, acts nice, is personable, Um and she's the likable face, and then grumpy old me can run in afterwards. But the, okay, so I mean, the, the the judge was very, very outspoken on this. Said your witness statement was not merely inadequate or infelicitously explained. The vice was not that it omitted explanatory background, but rather that what it did say was straightforwardly false in almost every material respect. That's because we put no evidence on, and um, that's because of my damn lawyers. But how did fired. they know it was false if the then. I mean, the other must, side said this didn't happen. But in fact, you withdrew these uh, these claims just before the case was heard, I think, didn't you? Mm. Why was that? Um, a little bit before. The lawyers um, told me that they didn't think that uh, would be helpful given the nature of the case. Uh, I didn't want to withdraw it, but um, Adam, the QC, did. Um, and so it's one of the things where I, I learned never to ever do anything my lawyers ask again if I don't believe in it. Um, and I've found that has been the case. I mean, where I've fought for things that I want in my way, we generally win. When I do it their way, I've actually got a 100% track record of losing whenever I um, listen to my lawyers. Expensive. That's mm. I'm not kidding on that one. Right. Every single time I've, in my history going back to the 90s, I've listened to my lawyers and taken their advice, I've lost. Hmm. Every time I've told them to go, you know what, um, I've won. Let's get back to, to Bitcoin then. You've talked in, about spending Bitcoin in 
everyday casual transactions. I mean, when I started working at CoinGeek, yeah, we were we were little demonstrations were going on where you could go down to the bar and um, buy beer with mm. Bitcoin and stuff. I mean, is that still the vision? That's part of it. Yes, um, I'd like to see everyone being able to spend money um, directly. And um, this is the whole unbanked bit. It's not about unbanking people. Banks do something that Bitcoin doesn't. They give home loans, for instance. Now, what banks don't do is they don't include people who don't meet their standards. Mm. So that's where cash is necessary. Right. So um, in the the US, uh, people who um, either... Um, don't have all the right documentation or they're, they're not earning enough or the transient workers. Um, a lot of them have payday check services now that they use and these can take 20, 30% of their earnings. Mm. So it really is, as stated on the white paper, it's digital cash. Mm. Well, think about um, places like Kenya uh, mm. where I did one of my doctorates. And Kenya, uh, the average earnings are in the dollars a day. And this concept of BTC and $30, $40 a transaction is mm. just ridiculous. Even the Lightning Channel, if you're going to op- open five or six channels um, uh, sort of every year even just to keep everything open if you've got the cash, then that's still opening and closing around $70. And um, for someone earning a few dollars a day, then uh, $350 to 400 uh, dollars is a lot of money. Well, one thing you mentioned at the workshop that I thought was interesting is supposing you were paid your salary by Enchain in Bitcoin, um, you said that you might then go into your wallet and move some of that money and send it to some, somewhere else because whoever sent you the money at Enchain would know what address they'd sent it to. Or addresses, yes. Or addresses. And in theory, then, they could see whether you'd spent it or what you'd done. I mean, is, is that a problem? Because anyway, It's so- just increasing privacy. Yeah. Um, I mean, for instance, if you then know when I spend my money, mm. then you still know some information about me. Do I spend it straight away? Do I go out that night? That's all information. Yeah. So as soon as I just mix it a couple of times by sending it back and forwards to myself, um, you no longer know which one is what. Right. So if I get sent £100 by somebody, they know what address they've sent it to. How would I stop them just following what I do with it from then on? Um, well, make a payment for £11 and £89 to yourself. Then use the 11 and split it up and use the 89 and split it up and then... But they could, I mean, but, but then it would just know. be, they couldn't be bothered to follow it because it'd be so complicated. But how do you know which one's a payment to someone else? Right. So, they, yeah, so they wouldn't know at some point, I may not be the owner of this address anymore. You know that some time in history that this touched you. Yes. Right, I mean, right. I mean, if, for instance, there's a 50 pound note. And six months ago, you had the note according to the serial number uh, recording in, in an ATM. And it turns up um, owned by some guy working for Hezbollah yes. um, six months later. Does that mean you gave it to him? No. Right, right. I just want to end by asking you about um, Silicon Valley and communism. 
because this is one of your favorite subjects, I think. And I've, I've... It's not my favorite subject, but it's a, a topic I rant about a lot. Yes. <laughs> not many people are worried about communism these days, I don't they think. They should be. Well, okay, so but this is my question. I genuinely don't understand. You know, you talk about Mark Zuckerberg's ideas on Marxist. Mark Zuckerberg used to blog about communism all the time. Right. If you look at his early blogs, um, apart from the drunken ones, he used to actually talk about um, you know, communist society, um, eating the rich, all this other stuff. All right, but what is it about Silicon Valley's business model that is communist? Oh, they're like every typical um, want-to-be uh, autocrat. So they talk about things like um, universal basic income and all these other but things. not as part of Facebook or something. They, 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 you mean they, really? as individuals they believe in that? It's part of what they're doing. It's really? part of the structure they're trying to build. So when they're talking about Libra and um, their sixth attempt at making a, a failed cryptocurrency, mm. then what they're really trying to do is bring in this global world cash that they, they maintain and they manage. Right. So it's like Bitcoin except that they're managing it, basically. Well, it's more than they're managing it. With mean, Bitcoin, there's no changing the rules or anything like this. With Zuckerberg coin, then it's really there to put his sort of social views, policies, etc., on imprinted on other people. And um, the irony is with every communist, um, it's fine to take other people's money, but not theirs. I mean, if you're talking about Lenin or Stalin or Mao, um, they lived like princes. But it's okay because we're instituting the change that makes the world better. And just like that, um, you have people like Zuckerberg who take over uh, land that's traditionally owned by people uh, for thousands of years in a way. Mm. The first thing he does is kick them off. Well, that's not very communist. Well, yes, it is. I mean, they practice different to what they preach. So he says how other people will do the you'll own nothing and uh, mm. be happy world um, uh, communist forum um, dictate bit, but they forget who owns it. So it'll be uh, instead of the state, it'll just be um, Corporation and Zuckerberg. So Mark will own it all and Silicon Valley will own it all. And you guys will be happy because so, you have a new overlord. So the reason it's like communism is that they're building in these mega tech companies the equivalent of a communist state. Fairly much, yes. Is that, um, that's your argument? Yeah, and like all of these, I mean, they'll say that it's equal, and what they'll try and do is just push everyone to be equally poor, equally dumb, equally oppressed, apart from Mark, um, who'll be an outlier. And you don't put him in the statistical um, thing, so everyone's equal because you, you ignore outliers. Right. It is confusing, though, because for most people, the Silicon Valley ethos is one of sort of hyper-capitalism. Oh, BS. There's no capitalism in Silicon Valley. It never has been. Um, <laughs> Peter so Thiel? Is anti-capitalist. In what way? Uh, if you read Adam Smith, Adam Smith talks about the need to restrain people like Peter Thiel. He says they will all try and um, use sophistic as in being a sophist, techniques to convince you that their monopoly is necessary for the country. Right, so they will... Yeah, Adam they, Smith, they will, 1766, said this. Right, they, they could they have been go, saying, Mr. I mean, Thiel, yeah, this is you. The, these these sophisted, 
sophisticated, what do we call them? Sophist. Sophist sophist, um, manufacturers will go to the government Mm -hmm. and ask ask for regulation. We don't want to protect industry. Mm. You need to protect us. Right. Because we are simpler to tax. If there's only one of us, if you've got hundreds of companies out there competing, think of how many different companies you'll have to monitor and maintain. But just one of us, which is what all capital uh, communists do. Communists always try and make one big state industry, a monopoly. They don't want competition. So if you think about Silicon Valley, they're not competitive. Google's anti-competitive. That's why they're facing those sort of... uh, Because it's monopolistic. It is very monopolistic. They buy and crush. Um, And there's no innovation. They, They talk about how innovative they are. What? Tell me, name me a real innovation done by Silicon Valley since 2000. Right. Can you think of any? Um, chat GBT? <sighs> it's basically just an algorithm that dates to the 80s uh, on faster machines. Right. So much more information to feed it, but that's it. So it's not a new algorithm either. Uber? Uber's not innovation. It's just... Um, uh, the ability to undercut people by um, uh, doing rideshare applications. Not, it's just a faster way of connecting more things. So what I'm saying is real inventive steps. Mm. So there's Airbnb running around saying we don't own anything, except they do. Mm. And the argument is Silicon Valley don't, that you don't need to own anything. But Airbnb have hotels. They have a management mm. company. They have property. Mm. People don't seem to realize that. I had the argument with someone the other day and they said, oh, but Amazon doesn't have any brick-and-mortar stores. And I went, Whole Foods. And then I went, Kindle stores, Mm. physical walk-in stores. The difference is they deliver it to your home. You can walk out with it, but they prefer to deliver it then they don't need to restock shelves. But that's a brick-and-mortar store. But, I mean, you're trying to get the Bitcoin SV economy going, which is a massive global ambition. Is it really in your interest to sort of spend time slagging off Silicon Valley? I don't Oh, yeah, because um, they're the opposite of what we want to do. But so why, it's don't, like, why not just let them do their thing and then you do yours? So basically the way I'd describe it is the world's a body. They're metastasized cancer. So... Think of it like you've got a small group of six or seven cancers, all different ones. What, you Not mean one. The, you like mean you've got tech lung companies. cancer and skin cancer and all going at the same time. Maybe testicular cancer. We call that one Zuckerberg cancer. Um, <laughs> and they're all going simultaneously. And um, you can say, why don't we do nothing about these? Hmm. Yeah, because you know what happens when you, you ignore that testicular cancer there? Um, Facebook keeps eating away at everything and Google keeps eating away at everything and yeah it doesn't work so you have to do both Craig thank you very much for your time both this week and last week it's been very interesting talking to you you're welcome really appreciate it thank you Thanks very much to Dr. Craig Wright. And if you missed the first part of our conversation last week, it's still available, of course. Next week, I'll be talking about a genuine Bitcoin SV business, Jack Pitts' Slictionary, 
which is building an online dictionary with innovative financial incentives, but which also harks back to the way definitions were collected for the Oxford English Dictionary centuries ago. So please join us for that. But until then, from me, Charles Miller, thanks for listening and goodbye.